Good to see you today. Great to be back. It was a good day yesterday if you made it to the conference. We had a wonderful time. If you didn't make it to the conference, uh, we had a wonderful time without you. And uh, it's an excellent, excellent year. This is our third year, I guess, being here, and uh, it gets better and better. I, I, you get sort of more comfortable with groups and, and people, and they get a little more comfortable with you, and it's been a, a great journey, and we want to do some more of that this morning. I, I'll give you a quick bio rundown. I, I, I don't want to run through my whole history, but I know that we have a bit of rapport. You know, I've moved around a lot, and... Uh, my wife, Natasha, sends her greetings. She's not able to be with me on very many trips because we still have one, one kid at home. My daughter's a sophomore in high school and yet to be able to drive, and so we still need someone there uh, for you know, the weekends. And so she's there with my daughter, Lauren. They greet all of you. My daughter is uh, involved in theater and uh, is in musical theater, so she does two shows a year, so it's difficult for her to get away. Anyhow, that's sort of her thing. She's my super academic, smart kid, honor society, honors classes kid, and then there's my son, who's, uh, God, God bless him, no, 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 well, God, God bless him, yes, but it, uh, he's a sophomore in college, my son is a, is a sophomore at Doan University in Nebraska, he is on a baseball scholarship, and uh, we, I think I walked you through our hopes and prayers for that a few years ago when we were first here, and he did get that and had an excellent freshman year. And uh, everywhere I go, people ask, will he go pro? And, I, and I, I, the answer is, well, he is in his own mind already a pro. Um, <laughs> there's a lot that has to go right for that to happen. We'll leave that. Uh, he has to work really hard, and we'll leave it in the Lord's hands. But um, anyway, Lucas is... Uh, it greets you as well, even though he doesn't know he's doing that, but he's greeting you today from Nebraska. I'll do it on his behalf. Uh, we are living in Flowery Branch, Georgia. Flowery Branch is uh, the home, the training camp of the Atlanta Falcons. We are about 45 miles north of down, northeast of downtown Atlanta. It takes about an hour. It can be in Atlanta. I am heading home after service this morning to be with my lovely ladies and get our week started, and so I will be heading out after we leave. Um, we'll spend a little time at the product table. We do have some books. We do have some flash drives with sermons and sermon series on them. If you're interested in those, you can meet me out there afterwards. We'll tell you all about it and uh, get you fixed up. Are you ready for Word today? I'm excited this morning. I've had a great weekend hearing about the love of God and my identity in Christ and spreading some of that to you. Grab your Bible or your device and go to Psalms 145. I want to have a good starting point today, and then we're going to take sort of a circuitous route right back to where we started because I want to take you on a little journey in the Old Testament to begin with today. Psalms 145 is a Psalm of David. You are looking into... Pretty fascinating slice of history in Judaism when you look at the book of Psalms because you learn a lot about a culture by its music. You learn a lot about the way people think and the way they treat the world and the way they feel within that world by their music. You can even take a slice of America of the last 60 years or 70 years and see about what the world was like listening to its popular songs. You can do the same thing in Judaism by taking a peek into the book of Psalms. It's an unusual book. It falls outside of the Torah, so it's not considered the law. It's not necessarily considered prophecy. It almost falls within its own categorization in biblical study. And it's one of the few books of the entire Bible that is actually broken by the original writers 
into chapters and verses. Almost every other book of your Bible, the chapters and verses were decided by a group of scholars and translators. Sometimes they did a very good job of breaking them up, and sometimes you wonder what in the world was going on in the room when they decided to stop one chapter and start another one, or a verse and start another one. But in Psalms, you're getting complete songs. And so you're getting a glimpse into not only the songwriters' feelings and thoughts and opinions, but their theology, how they viewed God, how they felt about God, how they thought God felt about them. you got to remember that when you read the Old Testament book of Psalms because we're in the Old Testament. And when you're in the Old Testament, you're in the Old Covenant. So therefore, you're going to get some songs that sing from a place of Old Covenant. You ever heard a sad song? A depressing song? Someone who's downtrodden when they write a song or record a song, you get a few of those in Psalms because you're in an old covenant. And in an old covenant, it's a covenant based upon performance. And then sometimes you get these euphoric, just excitable tunes. And we don't know what the melodies sounded like to these, but you can tell some of these were perky and they were excitable and they were quick. And so you get these amazing little slices. Before we're done today, we're going to work our way through parts of this psalm. We'll go work our way back into the old, deeper into Torah and back up to parts of this song. But I want to start with one line from the song because sometimes all you need is one line to really build a case about what a songwriter is trying to say. Psalms chapter 145, verse 9. And guys, this is a great one for you to memorize and remember when you go out into the world. Psalms 145 and 9, the Lord is good to all. Let me ask you a question. Who's the Lord good to? The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. You honestly could stop there. You had one verse, preach an entire sermon. The Lord is good to all. Work the tributaries off of that. It's wonderfully good news. I'll do it for just a moment. I'm excited about this verse because it tells me that David, who had reason to be discouraged and live under condemnation and shame, if ever anyone did, and I don't even need to run you down the story of David, but this psalm comes from a guy who could write from a very dark place. It's the same guy who writes, my sin is ever before me. Lord, please don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me white as snow. And yet here is David, the Lord is good to everyone. Why do I want you to remember that? Because you're going to live in a world, you do live in a world in which when people think of theology or they think of God, they often think of him in harsh terms and judgmental terms. They think of God as so holy that he's unapproachable. They think of God in, in terms of their recent failures or their recent sins. And, and we look at people in the world who are living destructive lives and wasteful lives, prodigal lives, and we imagine that if the world were perfect, they would get what's coming to them. And they will get what's coming to them. And God will make sure they get what's coming to them. And it's hard through that lens to imagine that God is good to everyone because not everyone deserves for God to be good. So let's start there. How many people on the earth deserve for God to be good to them? Correct answer. Zero people deserve for God to be good to them. So what makes you and I the arbiter of who God gets to be good to. Does God, is God forced to be good to those who are good to their neighbor or good to those who, and we're going to keep it, just keep it really practical, good to those who at least go to church or 
put some money in the offering, make some sort of effort. I mean, my goodness, try a little bit to be kind and, and, and you know, stop cutting people off in traffic and stop pushing your airplane seat back on flights and, you know, just basic fiddle-faddle. Uh, or is God good to all and we don't need a metric? We don't need a measuring stick. We don't need to be arbiters of God's justice. We can just receive that maybe he really just wants to be good to all. We get a glimpse of it. In the New Testament, well, the New Testament is radical with it, but we get glimpses of it even in like the ministry of Paul where he's in Athens and he's preaching to the Athenians and he sees the statue to the unknown God. And he doesn't say to the Athenians, you idiots, there's no unknown God. His name is God. His, his name is Jesus, and all your other gods are stupid. That's how most of us would preach if we were standing there in Athens. These other gods are ridiculous. God of the water? God of the sun? What are you talking about? Let me introduce. Instead, he says, let me tell you about this unknown God. In him we live, and we move, and we breathe, and we have our being, and we are his offspring, and he is not very far away from any of us. And that's to heathen people. I mean, that message doesn't even go over in the church with Christian people, much less idol-worshiping Greeks in the middle of Athens in the first century. And yet, Paul's message is he's not very far away from you. It's better news. Here, here's, here's, to me, this is the whole gospel. It's better news than you think it is. You say, well, you don't know how good I think it is. doesn't matter. It's better news than you think it is. Well, I don't think it's very good news. Well, it's way better news than you think it is. Well, I already think it's pretty radical. Well, it's even better than that. How do we know that? Well, God is good to everybody. God is good because it's God's nature, not because God's just made a choice. And that's the key understanding that we want to dig into the Old Testament to figure out. You would think to find that out, you need to go into the New Testament where you can see that God is good because you can watch Jesus moving around and helping people. And how many of you realize that what Jesus comes to do is to show you what dad really was, what dad really is? I call him dad. That's just a familiarity. I, I, I don't know if Jesus called him dad. I know he called him father, and I know he called him Abba, and that's pretty close to dad or daddy, and so I believe that the intimacy is okay with God for us to say he's father. Jesus is really moving around the world trying to show people this is what my father looked like, and we never get it if we come into the scenario with an idea about what God looks like that disagrees with Jesus. Jesus' own disciples in John 14 say, just show us the father. And Jesus says, how long must I be with you until you realize that if you see me, you've seen the Father? It's a rhetorical question. It's a sarcastic question. How long do we, you and I need to be together day and night, night and day, 24-7, healing the sick, walking on water, raising the dead, three and a half years of ministry before you realize that if you look at me, you're looking at the Father? Apparently, we need to be together a lot longer than 24-7 for three and a half years. And I think it's, that's absolutely true because here we are 2,000 years later still confusing what God looks like and we have the picture of Jesus in the Word. So God is not good because God made a choice to be good to bad people. God is not good because God is contractually obligated to be good. I love covenant preaching, but sometimes we're pushing it. 
with co in covenant preaching, in covenant circles, because we're saying things like, under the new covenant, God has to respect you. God has to love you because you're in Jesus. And it almost as if God is sometimes reluctant, but then he looks at the contract <laughs> and goes, ah, foiled by the blood. <laughs> I really wanted to get them this time, and then they appealed to Jesus. And I kind of had that image of God growing up because I saw God, you know, in the Old Testament and I misinterpreted a lot of things about God because we're, you're going to see yourself how easy it is to do that in just a moment when we go dig back in to the text. But I would see God and think, uh, you know, God's not happy with me because I'm doing some stupid stuff. But, boy, Jesus is a nice guy. Now, I had this real dichotomy. There's God who's austere and gray-bearded and a judge, and he slams his gavel down as my name is declared by Satan in his presence. Because that's how I always saw this happening. So the devil comes into the presence of God with my name on his lips, you know, at least once a day, saying to God, did you see what Paul pulled this time? And I had the devil almost all powerful because he could read your mind too. Like I had the devil going to God going, you ought to see what Paul's thinking. And I look back now and go, what, what in the world did I? I mean, I've always attributed way too much power to the enemy. So by the way, you're in a, the, this is my last day here, so I'm just going to say this and then let Justin deal with it. <laughs> Your biggest enemy is yourself, okay? Stop the foolishness of always attributing every dark corner of the room to demons you haven't found yet. The reality is the biggest devil you're ever going to meet is the one staring back at your natural face in the mirror. Because you'll do way more to stop your own spiritual growth than any outside entity ever will. You're the one. You're the one that has to agree with your identity, not the devil. You're the one that has to look into the word and find out what God says about you, not the devil. You're the one that has access to the Father 24-7. You're the one who has the identifying voice of the Holy Spirit that gets to listen to God in real time all the time. You don't have to blame any of this, the reasons for your deficiencies on the devil. You don't have to blame any of the stuff on an outside force. You'll do a fine job of it all by yourself. The plethora of amens tells me you won't have to deal with too much there. I think we're probably on, probably on safe ground. And so as we take a look at who God is, it's not that God is contractually obligated to be good to you because the devil's standing in front of God going, did you see what he did? And then God's, oh, I'm going to get him. And this is how I, this was the, the way this drama played out in my mind growing up in the church because I came up in the church. And it's not because this is how I heard it preached. Like, I never heard a sermon where someone got up and said, God's doing this and the devil. But it was this, this inference of, man, God's tough. And he's a, his standard of holiness is huge, and you're, there's no way you're going to make it. And you're, we were right as far as his standard of holiness. I mean, what are you going to do to be holy? But I had the devil bringing all this information, and then right before God slams the gavel down to judge me, Jesus stands up in the courtroom of heaven, and he holds his nail-scarred hand up, and he looks over at his father, and you know, there's that, wait a minute, Dad. And dad peers through the, lens, the hole in Jesus' hand, sees Jesus on the other side, the light coming down, you know. God takes one look through the nail-scarred hand of Jesus, and he sees you standing there now. And, and I would think, if it hadn't been for that, oh boy, where would I be? 
Now, I'm not in any way denigrating what Jesus has done for you at Calvary. Please understand, Jesus' finished work at Calvary and his resurrection is the reason why there's a new man in the earth. It's the reason why you walk in new creation. But it's not because God is so infuriated he need a blood contract by Jesus to keep from frying you. The reality is, is that God didn't go kill Jesus at Calvary. God went and judged the evil of the world at the cross so that the evil of the world has no control over mankind because you are his prized creation. You are that which he has always radically and insanely loved. Why radically and insanely? Because it's insane to love you. (laughs) And me, we're all in that. It's insane to love us. We're not faithful. We're lazy. We take him for granted. We don't honor him. Not to the extent he's worth. What are you going to give him back for how good he is? We're not worthy of love in a technical sense. It's insane to love us. And yet, we are the weakness of God. Why love someone who lives in your house and eats all your groceries and sleeps in your bed and never pays rent? Why love someone who causes you to stay up late at night worried about them? Why love someone who cuts you down to their friends and makes fun of you behind your back? I just described your kids. (laughs) Why love them? It's actually insane for you to care so much for someone who gives you so little. They have nothing to offer you, yet they carry your DNA. And that alone (laughs) makes them qualify. Not because you're contractually obligated to be good to them, but because they're yours. And when they're yours, you lay down your life for them. Well, they don't appreciate it. You don't care. You don't ask. You give. And you give all the time. And you give constantly. And you don't send them a bill and an invoice. You don't expect them to love you in return. None of you had children because you wanted someone to love you. You had children because you wanted someone to love. God did not create you because he needed praisers. I've heard this my entire life. God wanted people to worship him. He had a billion angels for that. He could have made a billion more. He does not create man because he needs another worshiper. He creates man because he wants to duplicate himself on the earth and see what it would look like to live through your eyes. What's the world look like through your lens? What's music sound like through your ears? How does it feel to laugh through your mouth? To breathe air through your lungs? That's God. That's that's this awesome God that you serve who doesn't love you because he's contractually obligated by the finished work of Jesus to be good to you. The finished work of Jesus has finished you fixing you. And there's nothing left to fix. And God is good to all of us. Now, we always have a but, because that's what we do. We go, but he can't be this. And, but you've got to mean only for people who you've got to, it's got to be all about. I want to show you that God's heart is so good. That even in the Old Testament, when God would flash signs that man interprets as a God full of vengeance and fury, 
He's a heartbeat away from showing the goodness. And all he's ever waiting for is someone to come seek his face. I want you to go with me to Exodus, and I want to show you, and I've, I've spent a few minutes setting this up so that you can trust this statement. <laughs> I want to show you the bad news today. So you come to church, you hear, what's gospel mean? Everybody knows that. We've done a pretty good job of the last 20 years explaining to people that gospel means good news. Okay, so the gospel is good news. If it's bad news, it's not the gospel. Plain and simple. There's no room for bad news in the gospel. Okay? I used to hear this. Well, the good news is only good if you tell them the bad news first. So we'd preach for 45 minutes on the bad news, and then five minutes of just as I am was all good news. Good news. All the stuff I just told you, you don't have to have. You can accept Jesus. It's like nine-tenths of every week was bad news. Set through the bad news, you get a little bit of good news. Okay, that's not the gospel. The gospel is good news. But the Bible is not always full of people hearing good news. Sometimes they hear bad news. Exodus chapter 33, we are coming fresh off the heels of God sending Moses down Sinai with ten commandments, and the children of Israel have been worshiping a golden cow, a golden cow that magically appeared according to Aaron, because everybody took their earrings off, he threw them in the fire, and out jumped a cow. And Aaron goes, this thing came out when I put this in the fire. Because that is always... That is always how we explain our idolatry to God. I don't know. It just happened. There was just, because there's a lot of truth to that. We don't know how it happens. It happens because we put our focus somewhere other than on who he is. Well, he's at the top of a mountain in this story, and we're at the bottom of a mountain. We, we are not there, but you're here in the purposes of this story. At the bottom of a mountain, God comes down. Moses, of course, 3,000 people die at the base of that mountain. Because they've been placed under the law, law immediately goes to work. When law goes to work, people die. Never forget that. The ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation, according to the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 3, the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation was written and engraved on stones, and the glory that is on it fades away instantly. The shine's off the penny when it comes to the law. The minute you put people under it, the shine comes off the penny. Because the minute you put them under it, you, they realize they're unworthy. They can't do it. And the minute they realize they can't do it, they walk into condemnation. So people begin to die. And this happens, Exodus 33, 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and he will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way. For you're a stiff-necked people. That's the word stubborn. Let me read that verse to you again. You guys go on up to a land flowing with milk and honey. I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, because you're a stubborn people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. What did the people hear in verse 4? Bad news. This is the opposite of good news. You just heard the opposite of the gospel. Let me ask you what the opposite of the gospel is according to Exodus chapter 33. Is the opposite of the gospel, you guys are going to go to hell. <laughs> the opposite of the gospel, you guys are going to die. Now, the opposite of the gospel, the bad news that Israel heard was, I will not be in your midst. I will not live inside of you. Bad news. I'm not going to live inside of you because now you're on your own. Good luck. It's a big world and it's tough and I'm not going with you. Now, how's that to start an adventure? Good luck on the journey. I'll meet you when you get back. Hope it all goes well. 
Fingers are crossed, praying for you. You get back, we'll see how it goes. And God speaks to Israel and says, I will not go up among you because you're a stubborn people. I'm afraid that if I go up among you, I'll destroy you. Verse 5, for the Lord said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you're a stubborn people. I could, not, I could come into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Your, your ornaments are your jewelry. This is the connection to Egypt. The remaining connection to Egypt that Israel has adorning their external body. It's what was left over after the cow jumped out of the fire. Remember when the cow jumped out of the fire a second ago? This is all the jewelry they have left over. It's enough jewelry to make another cow. I think that's the message being sent to you in the text. You carry enough jewelry into this wilderness to make another cow. What do I want you to do with the jewelry? The children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. And so God has given bad news to Israel. Bad news, I'm not going to be in your midst. This is the quintessential first message of the Old Covenant coming down the mountain. God comes down the mountain, judges Israel for the idolatry. 3,000 people die, and the bad news begins to be preached. Bad news. Because of the way you live, I will not live in your midst. Bad news. Because of your potential for idolatry, I will not dwell among you. Bad news. You're bad people. I just figured it out at the top of that mountain. You're bad. I didn't even leave you for two days. I come back down, you've all abandoned me. You know what? You can have it. You're on your own. Bad news. Good luck. It's bad news. So Moses goes to God by himself, approaches the Father. And in Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you haven't let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, and you also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight, and consider this nation your people. Look at that prayer. Consider this nation your people. Somebody mediates God on behalf of Israel, and says, please consider this nation your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And Moses said to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here. That's a good prayer. If you're not going to go, we don't want to go. 16, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you've spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. What just happened? Somebody appeals to grace. Under the performance of the law, God says, bad news. If it's you and your performance and you and your jewelry, you and your golden cows, you don't have room for me. One man appeals to grace. There is more power in the grace of God than you can possibly imagine. And it's not something God has added. It's something that's always in God's heart. He's just waiting for man to appeal to his grace. When Paul figures this revelation in Romans and says that where sin abounds, grace does what? 
Much more abound. We all know that in the church. What does Paul mean? Wherever sin is in abundance, grace is in superabundance. Why? Because wherever you have a great lack or bad news or abandonment or a hole in your soul, what you need is a great amount of who God really is. You need a great amount of what God really is. And so Moses appeals to God and says, show us your grace. So the Lord said to Moses, I'll do this thing that you've spoken. You know you found grace in my sight and I know you by name. 18. And he said, please show me your glory. And God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Let me ask you this. When Moses asks for the glory of God, which he just saw manifested at the base of Sinai and 3,000 people die. When Moses asks for the glory of God, what does God say he's going to give him? I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses, you've found my heart. My heart is grace. I, if I'm forced to deal with this people by law, I'd rather not walk in the middle of them. If all I've got is their performance, I, I got to stay away. Because if all they can bring to me is their jewelry and their golden cows and their performance, it's best that they and I not have a relationship, right? It's best to not have a relationship because all we really need is a religion. They appeal to me. They kill lambs. They feel better about themselves. We all go our separate ways. Bad news, it's the best I can do under law. But my heart is grace. What I really want is I wanted to make a nation of priests. I wanted all of them to have access, and none of them wanted it. You're the only guy, Moses, that has wanted it. There's a little hint in some, in some text through the Torah that Joshua wanted it too, because you'll have moments where Moses stays at the tabernacle and Joshua stays as well. And lo and behold, who's the guy that takes over for Moses after Moses is done? Joshua, the only guy that used to hang out at the tent flap of the tabernacle. Why? Because God always chooses relationship over Religion. So God went and found the only kid he could find that kept hanging out at the front door of the tabernacle to see what he looked like. And he went, that's the kid I'll have a relationship with now because I've always just want to show people my heart. I don't want to show people my stuff. I want to show them my heart. I don't want to show them what I can do. I want to show them who I am. I can do stuff all day long, but I want you to know me. That was Paul's prayer. Paul goes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I mean, Paul's living in a world with physical miracles, and yet he still goes, not good enough. I want to know him. I don't want to see him do stuff. I want to know him. I don't just want to see him raise the dead. We, we got it backwards in the church. But if I could see him raise the dead, I'd really know him. And the early church and the people in the Old Testament all the way through, it was never about getting to see him. When it became about getting to see him to do stuff, it was because Israel was so wrapped up in stinking religion, they, had not, they didn't know the heartbeat of God. Can I chase this little rabbit for a second? I think Jesus comes, Jesus comes into a world... I don't want to be here very long because this is a little bit of a side trail. So bring me back, all right? If it's, it's 11.45, so if it hits 12.45, bring me back. <laughs> it's a 60-minute side trail. No, Jesus, God says to Israel, I am the God that healeth thee. And Israel remembers that. God wraps himself in human flesh, comes on the scene as a man named Jesus. 
Jesus goes about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. What does Jesus do? He heals the sick. Why? Because God made a promise to Israel. I am the God that healeth thee. But did you notice he's aiming for Jews when he heals them? Gentiles get in on it, but they got to squeeze their way to the crumbs of the table. It's like that Syrophoenician woman. And she goes, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus says, good call. You can have a crumb. Yeah, children's bread. A crumb from Jesus do way more than a, a truck full of bread from someone else. And so Jesus flicks a crumb and her daughter's healed. So, so it shows you for God, that's easy. But it's amazing. You watch the Gospels. Jesus comes along healing Israel. Why? Because he made a, God made a covenant. I'm the God that healeth thee. So to prove he was the God from Sinai, he had to be healing people in the natural. To the rest of the world, what was, what's the new covenant? Whosoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. What's the new covenant promise you? You get to have the life of God. It's not that I just heal you so you can have longer life. It's that you get to have the life of God. So the new covenant promise is, not I'm the God that healeth thee, though I believe God heals. The promise of our covenant is, I get to experience the life of God. I think that's a glorious thing. So for the New Testament writers, it wasn't about, boy, if we could just see God do some miracles, we'd believe in God. No, it was, I'm seeing God do miracles. I want to know him. And that's almost backwards to our thinking. They, they saw the miracles, but they wanted to know the God behind it. And that's all God's ever been looking for. It's the equivalent of your kids. This would blow your mind. Just wanting to talk to you and not wanting to get something out of you. Would you, you, you you're suspicious immediately. Like your kid goes, can we just talk? And you go, oh, God. So this is either really bad news or this little snake's up to something. <laughs> what are you trying to get out of me? And just the thought that you mean you really just wanted to spend time with me? And I know we run the risk of bringing God as a parent down to our level, but God's always been good at coming down to our level because that's the only way we're going to understand him because if we got to go up to his level, it's all over with. So God brings himself down to our level so many times ago. Here's how I feel about you because I know how you feel about your kids. And it's such this glorious relationship that we get to have. So Moses, I'm back on my trail. It didn't take me very long. Back on my trail. Moses says to God, show me your glory. God says, I'll show you my goodness. And then he puts Moses in the rock. Verse number 20, you can't see my face and live. Nobody gets to see me and live. And that's an old covenant statement because we get to see Jesus and live. The Lord said, here's a place by me. You shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then will I take my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so God puts Moses in the wound, the cleft. The word cleft in the Hebrew is whole or wound. God puts Moses in the wound of the rock and then shows him his goodness because from the perspective of the rock who is Jesus and the wounds in his side and his hands and his feet, from that perspective, God cannot help but look good. So you, this is why you're in Jesus. You're not in Jesus because God's notoriously mad and if it weren't for Jesus, he'd kill you. You're in Jesus because Jesus became human so that you could see God through human eyes. 
So if you see Jesus, you're looking from the cleft of the rock at God as he walks past, and all you will see is God's goodness. If you look at him without Jesus, you're going to run the risk of seeing a Sinai God that knocks people down over golden cows at the base of a mountain. But if you look at him through Jesus, through the wound of a rock, you see the goodness of who God is. What does God's goodness look like? Exodus chapter 33, verse 6, the Lord passed before him. I'm sorry, 34, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. What a verse. What's God's goodness look like? Mercy, grace, patience, goodness, truth. When we say God is good to all, what do we mean? We mean that God is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in being good to people, and he's full of truth. We're not saying that God overlooks things. We're saying that God sees them head on and has mercy on them. We're not saying that God is blind to people's sin. We're saying that God sees people's sin and has grace on it. We're not saying that God makes himself ignorant to man's failures and his rebellion. We're saying that God sees man's failures and his rebellion and decides to be long-suffering with them. We're not saying that God overlooks our laziness and our unworthiness and our deficiencies, but we're saying that God is good in spite of the fact that we have all of that junk and baggage and badness and evilness. We're not saying that God overlooks our lying, but we're saying that God counters it with his truth. That's a good God. It's not a blind God. It's a God who comes at us with his eyes wide open, who hides us in the cleft of a wounded son, who puts us through the lens of Jesus and then shows us nothing but his goodness as he walks past us. Even when you've been in rebellion, God was gracious to you today. Even when you've your, shook your fist at heaven because things didn't go your way, God was merciful to you today. Even in your life where you've lost patience with him, he didn't lose patience with you today. He's been kind and good, full of mercy and grace and truth. That's God is good to all. And what does God say he's going to do with it? Verse 10 of Exodus 34. And God said, behold, I make a covenant. Now this is an interesting phrase because it's not as if God's establishing a covenant outside of Moses. It's really sort of a fleshing out of part of what he's doing with Israel. Behold, I make a covenant. Behold, all your people, before all your people, I do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you all, who you are, shall see the work of the Lord. Watch this sentence. This is worth underlining or highlighting. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. That word awesome is almost always translated fear or afraid. But contextually, in the Hebrew vernacular, that word is allowed to be that which inspires awe. The first time it falls out that way is in the book of Genesis when Jacob goes to sleep in the wilderness. And he has a dream and there's a ladder and angels going up and down on that dream. And he wakes up the next morning and he says, surely the presence of the Lord was in this place. And I knew it not. This is the awesome. There's the word he uses. This is the awesome presence of the Lord. Because you are allowed to use that. 
which would normally induce fear, to induce awe once you have a revelation of who God is. So God says that which should and could induce fear will now induce awe in people because they will know that I'm good. Only when they know that I'm good will it induce awe. Otherwise, it would induce fear. Now, what does David do with that? Go back to Psalms 145. The song we opened with today, we only opened with one verse. We want to do a little better than that. Psalms chapter 145, top of the song. I will extol you, my God, O King. I bless your name forever and ever. Every day I bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Songs like, sounds like a modern songwriter. Write a line, say it seven times. <clears throat> modern praise and worship. He's excited. He's having a good time. He's in love with the Lord, and he wants people to know about it. And then he gets a little deeper. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Unsearchable is a word that better translates beyond our understanding. I love the Message Bible right here. Message Bible, Psalms 145.3. There are no boundaries to God's greatness. So God never bumps up against somebody and goes, mm, better not be great to that one. He'll take advantage of me. You know how much preaching I've heard against grace on the grounds that if you're gracious to the wrong person, they'll take advantage of it? That's the entire fight against grace. Because the reality is, is you're not smart enough to know how to follow the Holy Spirit, so we're going to put some boundaries on grace. There are no bounds to his greatness. God never meets someone and goes, ooh, better watch it. That guy's not really that serious about church. If I'm good to him, he'll run with sin like crazy. Some people do run and sin like crazy. Some people do run away from God. Remember, who's he good to? All. Who's worth it? None of you. <laughs> no one. So how can he be good to all of us? He, if he's going to be good to one of us, he's going to have to be good to all of us because none of us are worth it. And yet, he's not good because he's adding on to what he is. He's good because it's what he is. And so he's good to all. There's no, there's no fence on it. There's no boundary. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome. Acts. Did you catch that? This is one of those few moments in the Old Testament where the word normally rendered fear gets rendered awesome. It's rendered correctly. Because you wouldn't say, I will meditate on your fearsome acts. But once you are convinced God's greatness has no boundaries, then you don't see God through the lens of fear. You see God through the lens of good. And once you see God through the lens of good, you see God through the lens of awesome. If he's not through the lens of good, it's worth being afraid of him. But if he's in the lens of good, you go, you don't have to worry about him. He's a big teddy bear. And he gives good hugs. You know, that's sort of that mentality. Like, don't worry about him. There's no boundaries to his greatness. And what some would look at in fear, you should look at and be in love with. Because he has awesome acts. And I'll declare your greatness. They shall... Utter the memory of your great goodness. Hebrew word, this is an unusual word in the Hebrew. It really means that which bubbles up. They shall bubble forth the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious. Now, guys, this is going to look just like Exodus 34. This is the description Moses gives of what God looks like when he walks past. The Lord is gracious. He's full of compassion. He's slow to anger. He's great in mercy. The Lord is good to who? All. Everyone. All everyone. Why? Because he's gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, great in mercy. The Lord's good to all and his tender mercies over all his works. Now there's more to the song. We stop 
at that reading where we started. The Lord is good to all. Not because God has added it to his personality, because he's under the new covenant and he's obligated, but because he was always good. And he's always just waiting for someone to come talk to him. So they have a revelation of how good that he is. And once you come and meet him, you'll never be able to see him as anything but good. And you'll also realize that he was even good even when you misattributed things to him. You know how many bad things we've laid at the feet of God? God, why did you do this to me? God, why did you allow this to happen? What are you trying to teach me? Life's teaching you a lot. God's standing somewhere with you. Life's showing you a lot of things you need to learn. God's holding your hand through all of it. Why? Because he's good. Now, here's the kicker. You don't have to believe any of this. I can't make you believe anything. You go to church every week. You can believe what you want to believe, right? You believe what's been revealed to you. You believe what's better revelation to you. It's one of the most frustrating things about loving the word and loving the gift of sharing the word is that people just keep staring at you and don't get it. And you go, well, I'm either terrible at this and I'm getting through to no one or there's a greater reality, which is well, probably that I'm terrible at this and getting through to no one. But also part of that reality is that you can't make people believe because they believe what they believe and what they believe shapes what they are. So the choice is really yours. In the book of Luke, Jesus is walking down a road and two blind men are yelling at him from the side of the road. So Jesus turns aside and goes to the two blind men and they say, son of David, would you heal us? And Jesus says, do you believe that I can? And they say, yes, we do. And Jesus says, then be it unto you according to your faith. The Holy Spirit began to drop that into my heart in some situations that we were having in our life and ministry. The Holy Spirit began to say to me, be it unto you according to your faith. I began to dig into that story. And this is where I stand on this now. I'm saying this as I try to wrap this up. Everything that you walk into in life, you have the option, you have the opportunity to assert who you are as one of the sons of God, to accept the situation as just your lot in life, to give up, have no meaning or purpose in your in what you're doing, or you can face it knowing who you are, you can face it moving forward, but it's all going to be according to your faith. People ask me in Q&A, what do you think about demons? Demon possession. Somebody that's got this, are they demon possessed? Somebody that's got that, can a demon jump off of one person, jump into another person, and they'll bring four or five verses to you. And I, you know, I got to where I, I, I'm, I'm it's honestly, some things I'm just tired of dealing with because we're not winning, bat, we're, not, we're, not, we're not getting through, because Why? Because people are doing what they're doing according to their faith. They're believing what they're believing according to their faith. So go, well, I believe this will happen. And thus, because they've walked into that believing it according to their faith, it's what they're seeing happen. So I want to challenge you as I leave today. Everything in your life that you walk out with Christ is according to your faith. Jesus over and over would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does that mean? Be it unto you according to your faith. Now, I just said it to you. What if you don't have ears to hear? Then it's going to be unto you according to your faith. You're probably going to walk out and not let any of it affect your life. It's also why we're walking around with a lot of stuff we don't have to walk around with because it, we're not letting it be unto us according to our faith. But as it becomes to us according to our faith, we begin to walk it out. So whatever it is that God has spoken in you. So I say this about the goodness of God. If you don't see God as good, you're going to start to blame God for all kinds of things. If you don't see God as good to everyone, then you're going to blame all kinds of things on people and on God. And you're going to attribute to God things that don't belong to him. But if according to your faith, God is good all the time to all people, that it is the default position of God, that it is who you will find if you ever find him in revelation, in the revelation of who he is, then according to your faith, let it be.
Let it be. I think there's even believers that could be walking in places they long to walk, but they're not walking in those because it's not according to their faith. I think we're carrying stuff around with us we don't have to carry around with us, but it's that way according to our faith. It's a great amount of power in what people say to you about who you are. I'm not talking about mind over matter. I'm talking about the reality of believing something so strongly. Got a little ache and pain? You go, you know what? I think I got a tumor. Before long, the pain gets a little heavier. I think I, I, think I might have cancer. I think I need to go get that checked out. I, we see this kind of stuff happen to people all of the time, all over the world. What's the, what's the reality? The reality is, is people start to walk in a lot of things that people start to believe. I'm not saying that you have what you have because of what you believe. I'm saying stop believing things about you that aren't true. Or you could say his body for my body, his flesh for my flesh, his blood for me. I partake of his body. I receive his body into myself. I partake of his blood. I receive his blood into myself. God is good. God is good all the time. God is good to all people. I walk in that. I believe that. I have that according to my faith. I can't make any of that happen in you. I can lay that out for you. It was what the Holy Spirit told me to tell you on my last moment with you this week. Be it unto you according to your faith. Apply it to every area of your life. We're not going to make it. We're going to go under. Be it unto you according to your faith. I'm getting sicker by the day. Be it unto you according to your faith. I'm believing God's going to do great things. Be it unto you according to your faith. It's not just about sealing it with your amen. It's putting your heart on it. It's saying this is who my God is. Be it unto you according to your faith. Whatever it is, be it unto you according to your faith. Because it's all according to your faith. So I declare this to you. My declaration to you and to God. I believe God is good all the time. I believe God is good to everyone. I believe his heart, his default position is to be good. He is full of grace. He is full of mercy. He is full of truth. He's not having to overlook anything. He sees me as I am in his eyes. Even when I don't see me as he sees me. My fitness is in my hands. My health is in his I take care of what I can take care of, and I believe according to my faith. He takes care of what he takes care of, and I lay it at his feet. I can affect what I can see, but I can't affect what I can't. So I will affect what I can see, and I will trust him for what I can't see because that's the realm he lives in so he can affect what I can see, be it unto me according to my faith. I trust the Father for it. I lay it at his feet and believe that if you will pick up that mantle of faith, that which yesterday we said is the call to great adventure, not the call to fun, but the call to taking a step forward into the next reality of who you are. Believe that the God that walks alongside of you is good, be it unto you according to your faith. If you believe that the God that walks alongside of you sometimes leaves you, forsakes you, and abandons you, I disagree with you, but you'll live according to your faith. I believe he's been walking alongside of you the entire time, but for you, maybe he's become invisible because you don't even believe he's there. Be it unto you according to your faith. Change your mind, change your world. If that was all I got up and said, you could say good motivational speech, didn't need that in church, but lay the gospel on it and then build off of that. That God is good. To who? Everyone. How often? All the time. Not because he made a choice, but because it's who he is. Off of that, be it unto you according to your faith. What do you believe a good God for? What would you believe God for if you thought he was good? In your marriage, in your home, in your body, in your finances, in your mind, in your career, in your future, in your destiny, in your kids, what would you believe God for if you thought he was good? 
Well, I do think he's good. Then what do you believe God for? I never thought about it. Then that's on you. Why? Believe it in according to your faith. There's a lot God has. There's a lot God is. Be it unto you according to your faith. So ask yourself this. What would I do this week? What would I believe for this week if I thought God was good? Be it unto you according to your faith. Father, thank you for Pure Grace Church, Mobile, Alabama. Thank you that you are good. I choose to believe the song, God is good to all. If I really believe the song, what would I believe you for this week? That's all that really matters. I'm believing you are touching a woman named Natasha in Flowery Branch, Georgia with peace and blessing. And you've been speaking to her of her destiny. And I am believing that, her, that revelation of her destiny happens because you're good. I'm believing you for a 19-year-old young man named Lucas who's pouring his life into trying to be an athlete play a game he loves, and sometimes along the way, his dad wonders exactly where his spiritualism is. How much does he know about you? How much is he talking to you? You've made it very clear to me that his relationship is unique. It's not mine. It's yours and his. Help me trust that. If I thought you were good, I'd believe that according to my faith, and I do in Jesus' name. And I pray for a young lady named Lauren sophomore in high school who's fighting the same battle every young woman seems to be fighting in America. And Father, I'm praying her self-identity be found not just in the way that she looks or what her friends say about her or what society or social media puts upon her, but that she have the explosion of the knowledge that she's God's daughter and that as mom and dad continue to put that in her, she will walk in that. If I thought you were good, I would expect you to do that. So be it unto me according to my faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Say, so why'd you pray like that? Because I was hoping you were doing the same thing. Not for my Natasha, my Lucas, and my Lauren, although if you were, I will agree with you and say amen. But because that's how you ought to be talking to a good father. If you truly believed he was good, what would you believe him for? So now you need to ask yourself this week, do I think he's as good as I say I think he is? Because it'll be reflected in what I believe him for. And that's a good challenge. I love you, church. I thank God for you. I thank God for pastor and your family. And I pray favor on you, blessing what you do and who you are. You're a light in the darkness. Even when you don't feel like it, you are. What you're doing here is special. You're a great group of people. I love being with you and hanging with you. Thank you for opening your home to me the last few days. What a wonderful couple. I'm praying the favor of God on you and who you are. Rick, be it unto you according to your faith, my friend. We had good talks this weekend. And I hope I've dropped that seed in your heart. Everything you do in life, be it unto you according to your faith. The Father's standing right there. I'm a good God. 
what would you believe me for? God bless you, church. We love you. Pastor.